And most people don't realize mostly that they're negotiating against themselves before we even go into a conversation. We're like, I don't deserve this. I'm no good. So I think the conversation that I struggle with the most, Rebecca, and that I think all of us do is my inner dialogue. It is rough in there. We address ourselves in ways that we would never address anybody that we know, like, and respect. How you talk to yourself often reflects how you lead and how you talk with others. Now, I usually get a lot of pushback when I share this with folks I work with and know. So many people are well aware of their propensity for harsh conversations with themselves, and they go to great lengths to make sure they treat and care for others well, regardless of how they talk to themselves. But in practice, The harshness of your inner conversations seep through into your conversations with others because of the amount of judgment, resentment, and simply just being out of alignment with expectations you're holding. And this may look like faking a smile when really seething inside or staying silent instead of speaking your truth for fear of losing control or the pressure or rush to a decision instead of listening and slowing down. We navigate our internal conversations while simultaneously engaging in conversations with others. It gets messy, and the inner conversations eventually spill out to our external conversations. Now, we don't need a three-step plan to cure our fear. Instead, we need to learn to befriend these parts of ourselves that are hypercritical and judgmental instead of exiling them or power overing them. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they continue to rise from them and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. The most challenging conversation you're having right now is probably with yourself. My conversations with myself for most of my life have been, well, subpar at best. I grew up on the slogans from Madison Avenue, just do it and no pain, no gain, basically believing that I just need to push through my pain. And if I can't overcome it, then that failure is a reflection on me. And then these internal conversations that were hard on myself felt normal. Now, when I connected with others, I found out they had the same toxic conversations within themselves too. But my common humanity with others who were also having harsh internal conversations helped a little. But I also started to see just how messed up the vice grip of the stories I told myself, combined with the pressure on how I should show up continually, leaving me at war with myself. (laughs) Enter personal development, and self-help that offered promised logical steps to understand and reauthor the conversations with myself. Now, there are some phenomenal resources out there, some of which I use and recommend on repeat. Shoot, I'm even a part of the industry, so I do believe in it. But over the years, I continue to see a trend from a good percentage of those in the personal and professional development spaces pressuring you to quickly fix your inner struggles and how it became a moniker of success and respect, even personal responsibility, on whether you achieve this relief or not. 
I remember when mental health moved to HMOs. I was fresh out of college, navigating adulting and the echoes from my childhood, showing up hard and fast. And I researched my healthcare benefits and found out my insurance covered eight mental health sessions. Eight sessions. Yikes. Did they not know my family of origin and the impact of growing up in a John Hughes MTV nuclear war existential threat of a 1980s world? Did the insurance company really believe eight sessions would cover all I was navigating? (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) Postmodern theories like solution-focused therapy and strategic therapy approaches believe powerful change can happen in a short amount of time. And these approaches became a fan favorite of insurance companies. Having studied these theories and used them early in my clinical career, I saw the initial changes in those I worked with, along with some of the promising research around their efficacy. But often, the changes were not sustaining, which led to a phenomenon I still see today, my clients turning on themselves for not feeling fixed quickly, and therefore further amplifying the toxic internal conversations they're having. And these approaches never really change the conversation within their inner system, but instead masked it with helpful tools and practices. And these approaches also neglected to take into account the many burdens we hold, both from our story and the world we live in. They are very present-oriented approaches that are not as interested in the past. Now, over the years, I saw how these brief therapy approaches to real pain were co-opted by others in both the personal and professional spaces. And some of these were combined with individuals' personal experiences of healing with the hopes to scale their healing journey to others. And many of the quick fixes offered from the personal development industry began to clash with my two decades of experience working with those who carry the burdens of trauma, shame, and crippling self-doubt. Change and repair take time and happen through relationship within our inner system and with those around us. Quick fixes and hacks are band-aids that do not stick forever. And I see on repeat how those marketing solutions to our pain have been and continue to be problematic. These messages play on our pain points and scarcity with three-step plans to change your life, to kill the fear, to conquer your doubt, to overcome your overwhelm. Sound familiar? But let's take a look at these words. Kill, conquer, overcome. Oof. We all see these promises delivered in ways that teach us to lead ourselves and others in ways that perpetuate power over and exiling the very parts of us that need connection and compassion. (laughs) I'll be honest, I feel like I'm still sorting through what it means to communicate solutions to pain without doing harm or adding to the burdens people are carrying. And when it comes to the conversations we engage with ourselves, I know many of us would qualify for a restraining order from parts of us due to the violence of how we talk to ourselves. I now see how our inner conversations of doubt, shame, judgment are not a moral failure, but a reflection 
of the world we live in and the thousands of messages we get every day focused on having us question our health and our worth and add to that our own personal burdens we carry from our traumas and difficult life experiences. And it makes sense the conversations within can get rough and they're not quick to resolve, but so worth healing. Our capacity to sit with and witness the discomfort of others is in direct proportion to our relationship with our own struggles. Now, Dr. Frank Anderson, a previous Unburdened Leader guest, he teaches that the highly critical and judgmental parts of our internal system are directly connected to our experiences of betrayal and neglect. But the message that we are the problem when we're struggling with how we talk to ourselves leaves out the responsibility of our history, our current culture that conflates beauty, power, and confidence in a way that fosters more hubris and masking. Many of us end up solely blaming ourselves for our negative self-talk and in turn end up doing the same to others who show up struggling with similar struggles, often wrapped in people-pleasing and over-functioning. I see and experience the relentless messages that pressure us all to be fixed and that our struggles are solely our fault. And these days, my internal conversations are a lot better, but it still takes a lot of work to navigate with compassion the parts of me that love to pile on when I make a mistake or feel vulnerable or misunderstood. When we exile our inner critics and self-doubt, we only add to the shame. Befriending these parts of us is the path to healing and relief. And that happens with practice in relationship over time. Instead of exiling them, I see the power of developing a relationship with the parts of us that always chomp at the bit to remind us that we're not enough. And as I deepen my compassion towards myself, I see that grow exponentially in my capacity to offer that in my conversations with others. Now, my guest today specializes in conversational leadership. The tools and practices he offers help us design conversations that matter. Daniel Stillman is the author of Good Talk, How to Design Conversations That Matter. He's also an executive coach for leaders who wants to facilitate real change, and he's the host of the Conversation Factory podcast. Now listen for how Daniel explains what he believes are the key ingredients to a transformational conversation. Notice when he describes the steps to create the space for these transformational conversations. And gosh, please pay attention to how Daniel connects the conversations we have with ourselves with the conversations we have with others. Now, please welcome Daniel Stillman to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Daniel, welcome. Hey, friends. (laughs) Rebecca, thanks for having me. I want to start by noting this belief that you have that leadership is the art of transformative conversations. I love that. When I read that, it just, it really stood out to me. And I'd love to hear more how you define a conversation. So I would say you can create the conditions for a transformative conversation, Mm. right? You can design the conditions. You can open the door, but somebody has to walk through it. And so I think it really is a very, very powerful skill to create the conditions for a transformative conversation, but I don't think you can 
have the, you can't, you can't make clean water. And so yeah. I think that's what we can really do is make the, a real invitation to a real equal interaction that can be really transformative. And I think that's, maybe that's my, the way I think about it a little bit differently. It, it's, um, we can't make anybody do anything. We're all just free independent human beings and we get the best out of people by inviting it from them. Well, <laughs> yeah, you got me thinking because I think if we're trying to get people to do things, we're, we're missing it. But it's really, yeah. this, it's, it's a U-turn or the YOU turn of what am I offering? And am I offering something yeah. that's going to repel? Or am I really offering something that will draw people in genuinely? So I'd love for you to go a little deeper or even more granular of what is a transformative conversation? Like what, what does that mean? That's a big word, right? Yeah. I mean, like we've all been stuck, right? And so that, that's what I mean is, is that a good conversation delivers what we expect. And there's nothing wrong with having a good conversation. You're like, Hey, good talk, everybody. That was a good meeting. We got what we needed out of it. That's great. But what I think we need more and more is something better than we can imagine. Mm. Right. And that's really stepping into a place and a space with someone expecting to, or hoping to be surprised and to create the conditions for transformation. Mm. Right. Because we, we see gridlock in the United States government. Uh, We see gridlock in our boardrooms. Certainly there's plenty of gridlock in our personal lives uh, from time to time, not constantly and consistently, I hope, but, that's what I mean by together. That to me is what a great conversation, a truly transform- transformational conversation is when one or more people steps into the circle uh, and they're willing to really lean into what the possibilities are. Uh, it's not about trying to win over someone to defeat them, uh, to convince them. It's like, it's it's exploration. I think that Every time I've seen, every time I've done that myself, every time I've seen someone willing to do that, I think that's a really good, that's a, that's a great conversation, right? Where we, where we, we both leave, all of us leave with more than we came in, uh, especially with surprise and energy. And that's really powerful because again, it's, it's not about being right or winning, but and I, I hear you and I'm like, yeah, I want an invitation. I want <laughs> yeah. I want an invitation and let's explore possibility. But there's parts of me and I know a lot of those that I work with that are like, you know, bullshit. I want results. I want end game. You know, I want totally. bottom line. And and so there sure. are these interesting polarities in at least here in U.S. culture uh, where this let's have possibility. It, you know, there's, there's that's not efficient. You know, there's, you know, do you need more space? You need more time or you, you say no. That is true. Okay. Oh, totally. Uh, what's efficient about life? <laughs> My God. I always say, you know, cause this is something where I, and I, and I've coached teams on, on innovation programs for, for years. And there's this question of like, okay, we want to streamline this. We want to do it efficiently. You don't just put an apple seed in the ground and then get an apple tree, right? This thing, these things take time. And so if you want great fruit, you need to grow great roots and that stuff takes time. You have to invest in it. And I don't think it's revolutionary to say that being curious about what the other person wants and needs mm. is going to bear fruit in a one-on-one dialogue or a multi-person conversation. We know force doesn't really work. It's a very short-term solution to try and squeeze someone 
to get what we want. Um, my first degree was in physics. I, I, and my minor was the history of philosophy and science because I was a big nerd. And there's this book, you've probably heard the term paradigm shift. Uh, the guy who, who, who coined that term was a guy named Tom Kuhn, who wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Hmm. It's kind of a heady book, but it's really, really interesting to see how the world changed its mind about some really big, important questions like, what is space? What is time? Like, are there elements or they're not? What is fire? So there's fundamentally different ways of looking at the universe happened. And if you're getting everything you need out of your meetings and your conversations and your negotiations, whatever, like, great. Hooray. I want to read your book. Right? And But if you're hitting a wall, if you're not getting the results you want, then the question is, well, Okay, are you like, maybe slow down, maybe listen more, maybe try all the things that take a little bit more time. I don't think this is for every meeting and for every conversation. Like there's nothing wrong with sitting next to somebody at a bus and being like, Oh, what are you doing these days? Okay, cool. Right. Good. Nice weather. Right. Every conversation doesn't have to be like that. But I think some conversations call for a lot more intentionality, slowing down, really feeling the substance of the thing and putting more time and energy into it so that we can get more impactful results. Yeah. And I would say the folks that are hitting that, well, it's not about maybe not being smart per se, it's, it's just, we don't know any different, like what we've been taught on how to connect and how to communicate really is two-dimensional, maybe even one-dimensional and is, is getting us in a lot of trouble. So I'd, I'd love you to, to bring it back down to basics again. What sure. What are the main qualities required of a conversational leader? Whoa. Well, um, the conversation operating system in my book was my effort to try and ask what is designable. Hmm. Like when I say like I come from the industrial design world where it's like we have materials and we're going to shape them, right? And steel doesn't act like wood and you can't make plastic do what leather does, right? There's a, there's a materiality to it. And so when I run workshops on conversation design, and I say, well, like, what do you think conversations are made out of? So that's the first thing I think a conversational leader needs to have is like, what's my material, mm. right? Am I sensitive to my material? Like, what do I think I can do? What can I change in this conversation? Now, people make a big list of what, I think, what they think a conversation is made out of. Vibes, emotions, words, positions, ideas. And I say, great, these are all really cool things like which of these can we actually see and shift like if it was a knob could we turn it and i think emotions are one of those things that i don't know what the knob is on emotions right like i don't know how to change how i feel i certainly don't know how to change how somebody else's feels so we're left with like words right which is a very broad category so i think a conversational leader needs to see these subtle distinctions mm -hmm. the elements of the conversation operating system that i think are probably highest leverage are invitation right? Just understanding what it means to design an invitation that is truly inviting to someone else. Understanding like the role that the space and place that a conversation is in, how that affects the conversation, like inviting someone to the beach for a chat versus a sterile room or going for a walk versus being on the phone, like chatting, texting. Where, where is the place for a negotiation? It totally depends. Tell me more. Like what what kind of time and space does it need? Mm. Right? A quick call? Does it need like an hour? 
I had somebody recently who sent me, you know, a 15 minute Calendly link. And I'm like, I don't do 15 minute meetings. Like I, I don't expect that we could come to any interesting conclusions in a 15 minute meeting. Now, maybe I would ask for a 15 minute meeting if they, if somebody who I really wanted to talk to said no to an hour and said no to 30 minutes and say, okay, cool. Well, let's Can we, can we start with a, a, a five minute meeting? Hmm. Sure. Right space place and time like is mm. is the space and place and time say what we want it to say Ooh. about the conversation that we want to have right space that's place and time and do those things set us up for the conversation we want to have i love that foundation yeah i love that yeah so Okay, this probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it like conversations <laughs> feel more challenging these days where people, a lot of people feel less interested in common ground, and more interested sure. in persuasion or worse, even bullying and dehumanizing. And so I'd love for you to maybe share from personal experience, experience about a time when you struggled with having a conversation, and how you were feeling in the moment. And what did you do to work through it? Uh, when I started writing my book, I was starting with this idea that group conversations is what I really knew and cared about, right? Because groups of people make power, make decisions about what gets made and what gets put out into the world. And then I realized there's this whole spectrum of conversations, right? There's communities and there's cultures, there's organizations, those are like big conversations. And then there's what most people would think of as conversations, which is like a one-on-one conversation. I think the hardest conversation and the ones that I did, the one that I did not really, really think about at all at the start of writing my book was the conversation with yourself, Mm. with myself, right? And so one of the things that I learned um, at the Harvard Negotiation Institute is that when you go into a negotiation, there's this idea that they call your aspiration value, what you what you aspire to, what you're willing to ask for. And that's the first conversation. And most people don't realize mostly that they're negotiating against themselves before we even go into a conversation. We're like, I don't deserve this. I'm no good. You know, I'm essentially an unlovable pile of person to put it how they might be giants put it like, so I think the conversation that I struggle with the most Rebecca, and that I think all of us do is my inner dialogue. Like it is rough in there. And I think I, yeah, just (laughs) breathe that in everybody. Rebecca and I can feel it. I feel it in my chest, right? It is, we are, uh, we address ourselves in ways that we would never address anybody that we know, like and respect. It just has me thinking it's like the physics because in in my clinical psychotherapy training and it's a systems approach that I was trained in, we were trying to train to differentiate between content and process, right? The content, Mm -hmm. but the process this and the inner process, right? How can I, I'm just thinking about what you're saying, the time and the place, you know, and and what I want from that. How can I even set that up externally if my Mm -hmm. internal dialogue if my internal conversations with myself are for shit and and so if i am you know turning on myself or not owning my worthiness um you yeah. know that type of stuff um or have capacity for that discomfort it's going to uh, entering into an external conversation i feel like is already not that it's necessarily set up for failure but it's going to be a lot harder totally totally and I, i'm so a personal example last week uh, I was supposed to have therapy and my therapist, we miscommunicated. He was on vacation. And so I was just sitting on my couch being like, 
well, fuck. <laughs> I, I'd had my journal with me anyway. And I was like, well, I've got this time anyway. So either I, I could go clean out my inbox or just sit with myself. Now we talked about like some conversations taking a little bit more time and space and, uh, and our willingness, like, are we willing to put in that time and energy into those conversations? We are bad. And I include myself in the, we, uh, with slowing down, mm-hmm. right. Uh, our senses generally go outwards, right. Interoception and, and knowing what we are thinking and feeling and sensing is harder to sit with, especially with negative emotions, although also positive emotions myself. Was it as effective as using an actual therapist? Like it was what was available to me. And that was me having a conversation with myself. And that's the hard, I think that's a pretty hard conversation to have. Well, I think it's really effective because what you did there was help your nervous system kind of, you did reps kind of doing the, the, again, mm-hmm. what we call in the internal family systems world, the U-turn. And, yeah. and you, again, we talk, we say slower is faster is one of our mantras in that, in that space. Yeah. And so you did the U-turn, you checked in, was it effective or as felt like there was flow with someone else there? Maybe not, but you, you did the yeah. reps and you, you helped your nervous system build up more capacity to sit with that discomfort and you didn't go numb or comfort with work. You sat yeah. with the conversation that was coming up internally. And so I keep thinking about transformational conversations and with what you're sharing about your heart. And I think this is for all of us, for at least most of us, um, that the most difficult conversation is with ourselves often. How, how do you see those two connected? Cause I don't, I'm, I'm starting to, I mean, this is probably obvious, but to have a transformational conversation or create space for that externally means that I have to be doing that internally to really hold space for that. That's not going to be possible unless my, you know, conversation mm-hmm. with myself and my inner system, I'm able to hold that space. Yeah, I'd love for you Correct. to elaborate yeah. on that. So this is why I think the the ability of conversational leaders to have that conversation with themselves to have that ability to self-regulate, right? And ask, well, what do I really want? Or, what, I, do I, you know, or I had, what do I believe even too, right? Yeah, what do I really believe? I had a coach years ago. I was in a partnership that was really, really struggling, a business partnership. Mm-hmm. And I would come to our breakfast and I would just complain and rail and like what I deserve, what they're jerks, like, you know, listing the the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that I was dealing with. And he's like, well, what do you really want? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, do you want to work through this with them? Or do you want to win? Like, <laughs> or do you want to walk away? All of the above. Like, all of the above, right? <laughs> and so this is the thing is that like, this is why I think the internal conversation is the most important one. Because if if what I really wanted was to grind them into the pulp and, you know, stand up, you know, on their on a pile of their bodies, Victoria, that we have, we visualize the kind of victory we want. I worked with um, a school leader. Uh, he he. There's a, a program called the Better Arguments Project, and you can look this up. They have a wonderful website, and they do all sorts of school programs. The first rule of the Better Arguments Project is to take winning off the table. Oh, stop right? it, Daniel! No, yeah, <laughs> stop it's it. It's not on the table. It's not about winning. So, what is right? it about? The relationship. Yeah, I don't know. The relationship. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's about understanding and empathy. Uh, well, so that's the yes. thing, and so it, maybe it's about the relationship. Mm. Maybe it's about the relationship. So again, the Harvard Negotiation Institute, I learned a lot 
I highly recommend is one of the nerdiest, most fun week long work vacation at Harvard. One of the things they talk about is like this, this concept of the BATNA, and this is all in getting to yes, you can read this. It's a great book. What's your BATNA? What's your best alternative to a negotiated agreement? Like, well, what if you walk? What if you win? You can't force someone else. This is the thing. This is why invitation is so core to the conversation operating system is that you cannot force anyone to do anything long term and get the best out of them. That is something I think conversational leaders know at their core. That's why coaching, uh, conversation, empowerment, and understanding what is intrinsically motivating to others is the best way to get the best out of other people. Mm. Trying to squeeze it out of other people works about as well as trying to squeeze things out of ourselves. You know, just thinking about just, you know, the new cycle, um, you know, how we communicate in shorter blips right now, too. And yeah. we're really hurting and we're diminishing the opportunity for transformational conversations if we don't step out of some of these this this pull it's almost like a current pulling us to what's expedient and what's gonna get the hits the likes the clicks the reaction the outrage you name it okay i want to shift to your book you break down the elements needed to design a good conversation you've touched on this a little bit already and each of these elements offers a way of looking at a conversation and what you referenced already is an operating system for good conversations. I love this. So can you just do high level, just very high level, what are these elements of a good, of the, of the operating system for a good conversation? Well, keep in mind, this is my conversation operating system. <laughs> like I wrote this book and I spent maybe two, two and a half years on my podcast interviewing people and trying to get a sense of what I thought were the smallest number of actually addressable elements. And I've been teaching with this operating system for a while. Some people have a hard time with some of them, right? Some people can't see invitation the way I can see invitation. I see invitation the way Matrix, the Neo sees the code in the Matrix now, right? Because I've I've taken that, that red pill. Mm-hmm. Right. And I see the, I, that's the code I see you can't in my operating it. system. You can't I can't it. unsee it. And so I would just say for everyone, if you are stuck in a conversation, you need to make a decision for yourself, list out everything you think you have control over, everything you think you can change. Mm. Right. And I would invite everyone to do it who's listening to this. Like if you have a stuck conversation, what is available? What can you unstick? So invitation is one of those things. Right, you can change the invitation and try and make it more intrinsically motivating for the other person. The interface that the conversation is happening. Every conversation happens in a in a place, right? It can be a digital place. Here we are, Rebecca and I are in this digital place here. We there's lots of ways to send the message, right, and to have and host the conversation. The space says something. The place says something about the conversation and the place and space allow certain types of things that other places don't. The place, the interface has something to say. It is not neutral. It has something to say about it and it affects the conversation. Just those two is a lot. I think there's like a whole life in just invitation and interface, but we also have goals like what are the goals of the conversation? What are we going to agree to as part of? What are the what are the rules and restrictions of the conversation? Right? Turn taking. 
I think this was the easiest thing I realized, certainly in my men's groups, like realizing like, oh, we're all going to go around the circle once to say something about something. And are we going to go, it sucks being last in that circle. So that's a way to design the turn-taking structures of a group. Are we going to have popcorn where everyone just shares when they want to share, but you only pop once? Are we going to have a round robin where everyone goes around once? Do we have a talking stick? Do we pass the mic? It, these are just very, very basic things, but they can tr- they can really shift the conversation. If for no other reason than whoever speaks first really sets the tone, anchors the entire conversation, right? So turn-taking is just maybe the the most noticeable feature of conversations. I talk, you talk, someone else talks, we all talk. A talking stick, that's a control, that is a design for turn-taking, hmm. right? And so just being aware of that. Uh, something else to be aware of, cadence, right? The, 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 the tempo of the conversation. And that can be inside of a conversation, like you said, political conversations, they get hot. There's no conversation thermometer that I've ever seen, but we all have one, right? We all know, is this conversation getting hot? Is it getting cool? And that's okay. It's okay to cool down a conversation. It's okay to get it heated up. Some of us just like in our operating system, some of us like it hot bar, right? Some people only want it hot and fast and other people just only like it slow and steady. And so what I say with conversational leadership is it's about range, right? Can you step into the ring and can you go at the pace it needs to? Can you slow it down when it needs to? Having that sensitivity to the cadence of and inside of a conversation, I think is something that you can you can control ones. You can name it. Um, the people in the conversation, right? Who do we invite into the room? Are the right people in the room? I don't think I've ever had a high-level meeting ever where everyone said that everyone who should be in the room wasn't. <laughs> and so who is not in this room and how do we get them in this room in user experience design where I cut my teeth, like we did that through personas and user research and we would put that on the wall and everyone would be like, so these people are part of this process. They are in this conversation, but they are not here in this room. I think people is one of the biggest issues. There's a team I'm coaching right now and it's like, they are just in one of these cultures where everybody is supposed to be in every meeting. Mm. How is that possible, Rebecca? Like, how can you have a culture where everyone feels like they're supposed to be in every meeting and still get work done? And who's supposed to make the decisions if everybody's in every meeting and everyone has FOMO and you're like, oh, you're optional, but you should totally listen in if you can, right? It's a conversation like, well, why should I go if I don't feel I have anything to contribute, right? Do I have the power to say no to an invitation, right? So power is another element of conversations. We have power over and with and for other people. Like some people just don't understand that power uh, affects, morphs, molds, smushes, deforms, uh, conversational spaces. I've definitely talked to leaders who just don't understand the fact that people need a lot more help from them to say what they really think around them. It's just they'd be, them being there. There's this idea of like, oh, I can't really say what I'm supposed to say. Like, cause they're there. Like, do they really want to know what I think? Like they have more power than me. So I'm going to say what I think what I think they think they want to hear. What I'm supposed to say. And yeah, what I'm supposed to say. So you just said, do you, are you, do you work with leaders who don't understand why those around them don't, like those in leadership have a hard time understanding why those don't say, or are you talking about those who have a hard time in the presence of power, have a hard time speaking truth? 
I've had both types of conversations for sure. I think both are important, right? For somebody to say, say, speak truth to power and power who needs to make a safe space for everyone to speak truth. Yeah, because I think it's definitely for someone who has power, however that shows up, depending on their social location, it's really important to be aware of that, even if they don't feel it. <laughs> it's felt by others. Yeah. The cadence piece is sticking with me, but I want to make sure, did you get all of the elements? There's two more uh, threading. Uh, this was something that come up, came up in conversational theory. Uh, conversations have threads. We've lost the thread. And we pick up the thread. The thread is just the story of what is happening in a conversation, what happened. And narrative, the ability to weave a conversation deftly, both before, during, and after a dialogue, is just absolutely critical. This is why, I mean, I think if of all the conversational leadership skills, narrative framing is maybe one of the most impactful the ability to like help people see the arc of mm. the whole story, the whole conversation. We're here. We're going to be here and we're going to get there, but we're here right now. So come along with me for phase one. And people go, oh, thank you. Great. I am oriented in this incredibly disorienting time that is 2022. Uh, and the last element is error, right? Mistakes happen in conversations all the time. The easiest one to see is always when we speak at the same time. We did this once where like we spoke at the same time. We literally collide in midair and you go, oh, no, no, oh, no, 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 you, 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 you. Oh, okay, sure. And then someone yields a turn, right? Um, most often errors are poorly defined and highly reacted to. Ooh. What did you just say? What did you mean? Like, and we already have jumped four steps down of what they actually meant right we don't say like so what i heard you say was this and i'm a little uncomfortable saying this but it it felt like you were implying this like and i just wanted to check in with you and give you i just want to make sure did you, is this what you actually meant and actually self-regulating and giving the other person an opportunity to be like oh wow no 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 no, no. you see that the, i did, did not mean that at all I, i'm terribly sorry please can we go back to step one and start over and actually go forward with it. Like that is a huge conversational skill. Hmm. I think that's epic because <laughs> I think that's one of the conversations I'm having and hearing from the leaders I work with the most is the fear of that error of the fear of being misunderstood, yeah. the fear of doing harm, even their intent and impact are different. And they feel overwhelmed when they realize their intent so different yeah. than the impact. And so if we normalize those errors and not, normalize doing harm i want to but kind of for the you know that we have to just say we're going to mess up how do we want yeah. to show up when we mess up you know because we are not this is not about perfection um yeah if we come from a place of perfection is more what i'm talking about not to say oh f it whatever it was what it was that's not what i mean but to to really just say okay here's my humanity <laughs> this did not yeah. land the way i went or i didn't respond i didn't yeah. i didn't hear this correctly and, and I think that's the art is like, whoa, this is how that landed with me. This feels a little yes. awkward and vulnerable and tender to say, yeah. but I just want to pause. And a lot of people just suck it up and kind of nod their head and don't speak to how something yeah. impacted them. So this is like, are we going to design the conditions for a mm. transformative conversation about a screw up, right? Are we going to actually go all the way into it and say, this hurt me? 
Are we going to go all the way into this and say that crossed a boundary for me? Are we going to go all the way down and say like, I really don't want that to happen again. And if you were to Google or go on Twitter and listen to a person of color talk about how they handle microaggressions, you would have a really, really interesting picture of a ladder of escalation of error and repair management. Well, you know, the first time I kind of just let it go. The second time I might actually email them afterwards, right? Third time, I mean, that's a lot of work. And this is, this is one of the challenges with conversational leadership is that when it looks, when you're doing it from the middle up, it looks a lot like emotional labor, which it, it is. It is. It yeah. is 100% work. I was, there was a, a Twitter thread this morning about um, the linguistic, um, it's, how to say this, women are seven to 11 times more likely to be described as um, bossy or overambitious in their performance reviews. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually coaching a woman who's who's dealing with this, where she's getting negative feedback from her leaders about her, you know, brusqueness or her, you know, know-it-all attitude. She's really smart. And I'm like, well, so this is, okay, we don't know. I haven't met your boss. <laughs> like, Okay, let's come and pause here. <laughs> I'm having, okay, I hear you. Are you having a reaction to this, I, this I example? I am, because I'm like, if yeah. it looks like a duck, if it sounds like a duck, it's, yeah. a dang, it's a dang duck. I don't have to know this this client of yours or her bosses to know that it's highly likely that that is at play here. I mean, that's my generous yes, assumption. Totally. But is it useful to lead with that in the conversation? <sighs> I think this is a conundrum for me. I don't, I, in this culture day and age, I, I understand that I want, if I want change, I know that I don't want to shut down those who, especially those who are in power, position of power over me mm-hmm. or with those I work with. But I also have parts of me that are really curious about walking around something and saying, hey, I just want you to know this is how this this is how it lands and this is my experience and this is in the room. Not your sexist, mm-hmm. but sexism is here. And I totally. think that nuance is important. But I I I've just kind of there's parts of me, Danielle, they're just tired of walking around it. But I also don't I we can throw names and identities and and labels at people and everyone just shuts down and that doesn't go. I get that. But that with these issues, it's almost yeah. the point of why do we have to walk around as oh, it's just tiring. So and 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 people who who talk about microaggressions talk about well, so it's calling someone out, or do you call someone in? Like, do you call someone in first before you call them out, or do you just fucking call them out? It's a, so this is what I, I say, agree. Rebecca. I agree. It's a conversation that is that you get to design the conversations in your life. Now, ah. a, a woman of color who is experiencing microaggressions, I'm. Yes. Uh, a Jewish man, I present as I am not here to, to tell anybody how to design their conversations. I'm here to tell them that they have a choice. There's nothing wrong with coming in hot and saying, I think you're fucking sexist. Now, he can then do whatever he wants with that information, right? What's her batna? Like, it's, maybe she should do some job searching before she does that. I, if I was coaching her, I, if you, I was like, look, if that's what you want to do, I, I would say do it. But I hear you. have your have your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. I don't think it's actually a very welcoming conversation to to nobody likes being told that they're sexist or racist. So she has to design that conversation. She's got to. Yeah, I, I just would like to be able to for for 
folks to be able to name what's in the room. Maybe we don't have to say you are, but this is this is showing up in this exchange and I need to name it. And and that's different than saying you are. I, I, I get that. Yeah. So I think this is, again, we're talking about like, it's better to notice and name our own experience and our own feelings Yeah. than it is to try and push it. Now, here's what we're normally doing in a conversation. Conversations have direction, right? And we're, we're, I'm going to push blame onto you. You're going to try and push blame onto me. And we're going to push and pull back and forth. And then we're in a struggle. Mm-hmm. And this is a classic. If we look at that dynamic, then the question is like, well, how do we get on the same side and look at it together? Yeah. Right. Not me versus you, but us versus the challenge that requires self tons and tons of self management. As we, as we said earlier, there are a lot of approaches to these conversations. As you said, like, I'm not going to tiptoe around this. I think your feedback is bullshit, right? You can't even give me any specifics. It's just a general sense, right? Okay. Or I'm going to call you in. And the, and there's a, a huge discussion about this on microaggressions. And again, I'm not an authority on this of like calling people out versus calling people in. It was like zero tolerance on calling people out. The first time you see it, say, Tom, that's racist. I tried to, in my Care Bear heart, just like focus on invitation, right? So that was, we just don't say that anymore. I'm just assuming you didn't get the memo and I, and I don't want you to look bad in front of somebody else who would judge you. And that's just me in the moment, just be like trying to call someone out and call them in at the same time. I don't know if it was effective it. or not. Well, you yeah. have to know, you have to name it. Yeah. The question is what will be inviting for someone to want to continue to participate in a dialogue with you? If that's your interest. Now here's the thing. There is nothing wrong with, as my old friend Carl used to say, let the bridges I burn light my way. There's sometimes there's no there there. And that's what error and repair is all about. If you're like, look, if this person just does not get it, when I tell them, hey, I don't know if you know this, but there's this report and there's a there's a better than even chance that this feedback is based on sexist uh, norms in people's heads. And I'd like to, that to be considered. And to be able to say it that straight so that someone can really hear it say it. There's nothing wrong with saying it. But I think it comes from, oh boy, this is tough. I mean, like, I don't, (laughs) the last thing I would want is being, I don't want, I can't tell someone, well, you can't say it like that because they won't hear you. Hello. Yeah, I agree. Right. And yet if I was coaching them, I would say, what can you do so that they can be they can come along with you. In and the what do you want? What, what do you want? what do you want? really? But you know, I'm thinking too, and I want to move on to another question, but before I, I just think even some of these call-ins conversations, they require a structure that's not hierarchical. How are we even setting up our conversations, setting up our teams yes. and our workspaces? All of that is, I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, yeah, setting Gl- space, building a container. All these you, things are really important it, skills. It's ground zero and Glennon Doyle Melton. I love how she talks about stop building circles. We need to have more horseshoes, you know? It's just like, you know, the space to come in and out. It's not, you know, also, mm. you know, super rigid and super closed too. Um, yeah. even in that, even in that, uh, collaborative space. So yeah, no, I, I just, I feel that in my system cause there are parts of me, but that's the conversation I had to kind of do with my own U-turn as I'm hearing you talk going, 
you're, you're not, you know, like I was just feeling with this coaching client of yours, <laughs> you know, is at 50 years old. I mean, how many conversations you're strong, you're ambitious, you know, you're, in, you're intense. And I'm like, and that's bad, and in a bad way. And I'm like, and I hear that from so because, many people I work with too. Because men haven't been trained to handle strong women. That's, and that's men's work. The, I think what's liberating is to realize that we have choices, right? And calling out versus calling in is just choice, right? And then the question is, which one will get you more of what you want in your life yeah. long term? And that's yeah. that's a question that everyone has to answer for themselves. I can't answer that. For, that's that's a yeah. internal dialogue thing. And it's a bigger conversation because some people may feel like their choices are limited because they have to keep the job. They have to, you know, for their life. So there's a lot here. There's yes. a lot here. So I want to shift to what brought me to inviting you to this podcast. You wrote an email that I immediately replied. I was like, can you come on the podcast? Um, and you, you, I don't know if it was in this email, but somewhere in my research uh, for this interview, you said you believe how we talk is how we work and do life. And I was like, oh. Oh my gosh, yes. And you've been an advocate for those who identify as male to do their own work so they don't default into the common pitfalls of mansplaining or manspreading, right? So mm -hmm. I'd love for you to walk me through how leaders and facilitators can use your elements of a good conversation to respond to these common power over dynamics. I think it, well, I'll take a big step back first and say like, yes, um, men have to do their their own work i mean just in the like the larger uh cultural conversation i think it's it's kind of a trope that men don't have friends I and mean, snl did a whole bit about it there was like a man playground that that women could take their men to and it's funny because it's true and it's sad so um, sad and funny yeah yeah it's sad and funny and i i i get the sense that all you know there's a loneliness epidemic period full stop um, there's research that showed I had, um, Casper Takul on my podcast. He wrote a book called the power of ritual. And he quoted some research that showed that like between the, the eighties and the two thousands, if you asked a random person in America, like how many people do you have who you can really talk to about what's really going on in your life? People would say like, Oh, you know, like I have like two or three or three or four people. And in the two thousands, people were like, yeah, I got like one or two. And that's like all of America lost one or two friends, At which least. is like, you know, and that's not even with the pandemic. Like if that doesn't make you want to cry just to think about the, the whole country losing like half of its best friends, like that's really sad. Now the question becomes like women have this, you know, or people who identify women, there's a character, you know, a characterization, a stereotype that women talk to each other. You may have experienced this this uh this trope i think it's slightly true right there's actually no evidence that shows that men or women talk more like amount in amount than one or another another but it does feel like the man box is real <laughs> the man box is like uh what you'd call traditional masculinity certainly in the united states of america you just have to watch a ford truck commercial or you know a cigarette ad and say so like yeah like there's ways that men are supposed to be strong certain steady um powerful uh you know this sort of 1950s vision and i think when we're talking about new modes of working and new modes of collaboration and new modes of leadership they don't look like traditional patriarchal forms of leadership and relating. 
the father knows best approach doesn't really work anymore. And I think men are in a, you know, decades, maybe even centuries long transition. I, I mean, on one hand, Rebecca, I think it's sad. Like I think every decade or so masculinity is taken out, dusted off and is deemed uh, wanting in some way, shape or form and needs to be revised or, or reimagined or fixed. And I think what I'm saying is range. So there's evidence that shows that women are punished as we were just talking about for taking on so-called masculine characteristics, being too certain about themselves. Confident. Right? Imagine that. Being too confident. Right. Um, the, the, the audacity. How dare right? you. But so women use hedges and tags. Well, you know, you might have thought of this, but or like, well, you know, I'm not sure this might be help. I hope to, I could, I might be able to. It's like all these hedges and tags that women use in their speech to try and lessen the appearance of taking power. Power, as you may remember, is like, I think a very, very fundamental element in a conversation. And that, that evidence that women are, you know, seven to 11 times more likely to be judged as being overachieving. But the flip side is also true. So if we think about like, what are, quote unquote, female characteristics like empathy and collaboration and listening and nurturing and warmth and uh, compassion. Like if a man does that too much, he is a wuss. He's a sissy. He's like, he's weak. And I think those characterizations at the extreme are absurd. We know that women can be strong and decisive and also compassionate. And we also know that men can be those things too. But I think men uh, have a bit of a crisis of confidence. Like we don't actually know how to navigate both sides of that spectrum. I think largely because we're aware of how, um, I think especially, I think there's a lot of white men out there who know like, yeah, this is not my time. I'm supposed to step back. Like I need to be more of this. And I can't be then decisive or firm or angry because then I'm going to come across as a fill in the blank. And so it can be a lot of second or third or fifth guessing and actually saying like, yeah, okay, I'm going to be decisive about this, but also warm and compassionate at the same time. And that's actually, I think, answering your question anymore, but I think the, uh, what does it mean to be a good leader sans gender identity? And am I, do I feel comfortable to just own B. B. Right. And get to bring out of the what binary. I think is needed and yeah. to get out of the binary. But yeah. we're stuck in this binary. Stay in the man box. And it doesn't really serve anybody at all. I mean, men have, you know, a lot of people will say like, oh, men, you know, the patriarchy works for you. I'm like, yes. And we go to war. Um, we die sooner. We kill ourselves more often. Um, and I, I, it's hard to say how much men are suffering in silence. Um, I definitely work with several men who struggle with these issues and need a place to work through experiencing the full range of their emotions and their identity. And then asking themselves pretty much the same question a woman would ask like, well, how can I be in Mm -hmm. this situation to get what I want in a way that feels um, holistically myself and doesn't cost me too much? Right. Knowing that I need to be a little different than I am to make things happen. How do I show up on purpose in a way that gets me what I want 
that is in harmony with who I feel I really am. And can I extend my range? Mm. I mean, I think a lot of men like anger is either the default or forbidden. Right. Actually right. having boundaries saying like, look, guys, that's not going to work. It's not going to fly. Like, I'm going to be firm on that boundary. I'm not just going to be a floppy. I'm just not going to flop over on that. So I think men having their own space to do that work outside of a work context is really, really important so that they can come into the work context and actually just. I want to touch on that in a moment. But I think my takeaway is, is that quality of power is probably one of the most for facilitators to be really, really in tune to the power in the room to address yeah. the pitfalls of mansplaining, manspreading, and and those types of things, that to be to address it and to name it and to facilitate around it. We're continuing to be in a reckoning. So I'd, I'd love for you to share. You talked about leading a co co leading a men's group outside of work. Yeah. For, and I just just would love for you to speak personally how this group has been transformative for you, and how you show up in conversations with those whose gender identity is not male. It's a great question. I think it's it's like going to the gym, right? I would say about 80 to 90% of the time men's work, men's group, uh, and sitting with difficult emotions, either my own or someone else's in the group, is really powerful skill, right? And I think it's increased my ability to be in, quote unquote, difficult conversations, Right. To be able to manage and to hold space for more complex, multi threaded, emotionally charged dialogues. It's increased Certainly your range. It's increased, increased your my range. range. Yeah. Well, because I mean, we've all been in that situation, you know, like where if a parent loses their shit, it's really scary when you're a kid. Right. And so sure is. there's this feeling that like, oh, negative emotions are bad. It means that I'm going to get in trouble. It means I might be outcast from the group. And so for me, I mean, certainly in my, my personal relationship, certainly in my, my, my relationship with my wife, like the ability to say like, Hey, that was a really difficult conversation. Can we circle back around to it? And can we actually play the tape step by step and look at what happened? Because there's a we have a process. There's a process in men's group, right? If you've got an emotional charge with somebody, you say, "I've got a charge," and then we say, "All right, let's let's circle up. What are your facts? What happened? Just the facts, mm. and then talk about your feelings. What's your needs? I mean, it's 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 nonviolent communication at the core. Like it's a space where you do your reps, so that yeah, when it's a space you're out, where we do reps. Yeah. So the ability to say, you know in those moments when we feel like our boundaries have been crossed, as you said, as we said earlier, like we can either shut down and clam up and feel like we can't say or do anything, or we can say that didn't feel good. Um, I'm wondering if we can circle back around to that. Uh, And I would just call it like uh, my emotional metabolism, right? Just the (laughs) ability, right? The, the ability to digest and process difficult emotions, um, more rapidly, you know, instead of having to chew on them for, uh, you know, weeks and months, it's like, I can, I can process them literally. And I can process them by myself. I also have a place to process them. 
right? I have men's group, I have therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think having a space to process difficult emotions means that I can go out into the world and just meet it where it is instead of bringing too reactive. much of my own bag, reactive and too much of my own baggage on a regular basis. I appreciate that. I really do. Thank you for. I wish all men had one. Like, I think we all, I mean, everybody needs one. Yeah. But I think especially in this moment, I think men need to be not relying on the women in their lives to be their everythings, you know, their, their nanny, their accountant, their lover and their therapist. Like that's a lot. That's a lot to ask. We are in the, we are disrupting so much right now. And I, but the bottom line is though, is we have to be doing the work and having that inner conversation, the hardest mm-hmm. one to have so that the, we're not causing pain. We're not offloading mm-hmm. pain uh, when we get hit with discomfort. And so uh, this is yeah. really, really helpful. Just briefly, I'm curious what you consider a successful conversation and, you know, and when did that idea of a successful conversation shift to what you teach today? Well, David, David Bohm, has, who's a physicist who has written extensively on dialogue, uh, his perspective was that a real dialogue is like a real chemical reaction, right? Where everyone leaves it changed, right? Everyone gets transformed. And I think um, that I, I do believe that's true. It's it's a challenge because sometimes I I'm running um, structures or processes for other people and there's a there's a line between me and them, but if it's really transformative, I get pulled into and I feel it as well. And so I think a really you know for both facilitator, convener, conversation designer, the people in the conversation, there's we nobody nobody gets out unscathed in a good way. We all get changed. And I think that's really what is truly transformative. Oh, that's you don't, a great you don't, you word. don't leave the same person. That's a great word and a great, a great call in a great challenge for all of us to be a part of those conversations. So I want to wrap up with some quick fire questions for you. Okay. What are you reading right now? Oh, man, I'm reading a really, really weird book. Um, well, I'm reading two books. One is The Reflective Practitioner by David Schoen. It's like a classic, which I've never read. Uh, it's slow going. Faster Going is a f- book a friend recommended called Blitzed. It's about the extensive use of methamphetamines in the Third Reich. It is a surprisingly what? fun and interesting book about like basically how much methamphetamine made like the Nazis rise to power possible. And I was like, this is fascinating. It's fascinating. On the list, I'm married to a historian, so he's going to probably be into this too. What songs are you playing or song are you playing on repeat these days? Oh, man. Um, I just went to Portugal with my wife for this conference and for some time around. I I loved, I already, already loved Fado music. And when we were cooking dinner the other night, I don't know if you've ever listened to any Amalia Rodriguez uh, she is was the queen, the originator of Fado music. And if you're unfamiliar with Fado music, it's this incredibly passionate uh, vocal vocal music with with like backing of just like classical guitar. It's really beautiful and um, very melancholic music. All right, best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Oh man, that's a tough one. 
Um, I'm I just started Obi Wan Kenobi, and I and I, so I feel, you know, I I'm I'm pulled in. I'm pulled in. A favorite '80s movie, TV show, show, or a bit of pop culture. Oh man, I I grew up on Three's Company. I think was like one oh of my those, gosh. like a. I mean, oh that gosh. was like, yeah, that's that it's that was the age. So I was problematic. That, that yeah. I haven't thought I mean, about Three's Company though, Mister Roper. Oh gosh, it's like totally. hard to watch some of that stuff now. But that was what we had on after school. We like Correct. watch this. Okay, what is your mantra right now? Oh man, I've got like a wall of mantras on the other side of this camera. Um, but the three, they're from my coach. Uh, the first one is, how have I been generous? Right. The second one is, will I be of service? And the third one, which is the kicker, is, will this create the life that I love? Love it. Thank you. What's an unpopular opinion that you hold? I mean, I think I've shared a lot of them today. <laughs> True. You know, uh, I, I don't know if I want to un- put a red pen and underline any of them. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know if the, if men needing to do their own work is unpopular, but it's, it's not common. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Oh, my, my wife down the hall. I, I, everything I do is to have a more peaceful, joyous relationship with her. We started at a pretty good level, but there's always, there's always new, new, new heights, depths, <laughs> heights oh, of depths to go to yeah that's that's the that's what it's all about for me that's beautiful Daniel. she's my teacher oh i feel that way about my partner too uh this has been a treat and i'm going to be thinking about this for a lot i'm going to go back into your book and i hope everyone listening to this does get this book because i think it translates to wherever we show up and there's so many good rumbles in it so daniel thank you so much for joining me today thank and you very much benefit benefit many yeah it's been a pleasure thank you folks can get a, a f- free set of chapters at uh the conversation com slash good talk wonderful it's, it's make sure place. to put that in put that in our show notes and you also lead a lot of workshops there too yes i do i do i, I run a facilitation master class uh twice a year there's another cohort coming up in the in the fall and like you i do i do one-on-one coaching thanks for being here i appreciate it daniel Sweet. i appreciate you Take Thank care. you. Bye. The way we talk to ourselves is deeply connected to how we talk with each other. And the external pressures and expectations to quickly fix any signs of doubts or fears and do so quickly feel really intense. And we're moving so fast these days. And we're just pushing through again and again while overextended and exhausted. And then our default, our tired default leads to piling on ourselves when struggle surfaces. So we seek comfort through the quick fix promises from many offerings in the personal development space with the hopes to get relief from the toxic conversations we're having with ourselves. And when they don't work, the shame spiral only deepens. Now, Daniel gave us a framework on how we can lead transformational conversations with others. And he reminded us that the most important, but often the most difficult conversations are the ones we're having with ourselves. What steps do you need to take to help cultivate transformational conversations around you? How are you navigating hard conversations with yourself and others? And where can you offer yourself some more patience and compassion 
as you seek relief and change from the toxic conversations between your ears. When we get curious and befriend the parts of ourselves that are judgmental and fearful, instead of exiling them, we help create space for the transformational conversations within and around us. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned and helps us have the hard conversations with ourselves and with others. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email, find the show notes and other Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. Thank you.